0: that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as, they were, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Thank you, Gene. Good morning, everybody. Jesus is nearly three years into his ministry by the time we come to Luke chapter 10. And it is fall, and the Feast of Tabernacles is at hand. And chapter 9, what Gene just read, is the account where Luke tells us that his time was near, that he should be received up that he should ascend back to the Father. And he set his face steadfastly towards Jerusalem. He wasn't going to change his mind. There's no going back. He knew what he came to do. He came to make that journey into the land of Judea, to the city of Jerusalem, on the hill called Calvary, to the place of the skulls to reach His final hostile destination on a Roman crucifix. He set His face toward Jerusalem for us, but there's much to be done yet. He really is just now starting to incorporate His disciples into His mission, into His ministry. We get a peek at that in chapter 9, and then later in chapter 9, we see Him go toward Jerusalem, not to return again to Galilee. The last thing He did in Galilee, we see, is He set a child in the midst of His disciples and said, become like this. And woe to you if you cause one of these little ones to stumble. And John chapters 7 and 8 record some of the teachings of Jesus Uh, When he made that trip to Jerusalem, we learned that he didn't come with the hordes and masses that he had been traveling around with in Galilee. His brothers chastised him and said, if you're God's son, go up and make yourself known in Jerusalem. And he said, on my own time and in my own way, essentially. And he came to the feast and he was highly anticipated. The crowds were murmuring about, about who he was. And they were murmuring about where he was. And the Jewish authorities were asking the disciples who were there in Jerusalem, where is he? Is he coming to the feast? And it says, in the midst of the feast, he appeared. John records, in the midst of the feast, he appeared in the temple teaching. He snuck in the back door (laughs) of sorts. He came in quietly. He allowed that anticipation to build. And then he began to teach. And immediately he was surrounded by crowds of people wanting to hear him. The authorities were seeking now how they might arrest Him and have Him killed. The scribes and the Pharisees were on mission just to derail His his credibility. They're going to try to trip Him up in words. They're going to try to show contradictions in His uh, character, in His message, much like a presidential campaign, I guess, right? They're going to be trying to catch Him in these things. And lo and behold, some of His own disciples become offended at some of the things he's teaching about being the light of the world and being one with the Father. And they literally, disciples, took up stones to throw at him. And it says that he disappeared out of their midst. He walked out, shrunk back, and got out of the temple. But it's at this point where the work really begins to intensify when He selects 70 of His disciples. He selects not just the 12 now on this commission up in Galilee, but He selects 70 men to go out and to preach and bring the gospel to the cities where He Himself would go. They went two by two. I want you to think about this for a second. 35 groups of men going out and preaching in all of these cities to go before Jesus so that when he arrives, their their intellect is piqued and and their curiosity is set at the highest degree to where where they would either receive or reject him when he came. What a busy man. It took 35 groups of people. Over the course of a few months to go before him, he was a traveling man. So when he was in Judea, now it's time to do what he did in Galilee and, and begin to tour that area, a little more hostile environment. And Galilee was hostile in some places. So on both sides of the Jordan, he does this work. And the next three chapters of Luke's account, account, chapters 10, 11, uh, 12, and half of 13, are unique to Luke. These next three chapters, three and a half, are not recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John. So we get some unique material here. And there's several things that he does here in his final months. So he begins to incorporate a wider range of disciples into his ministry. And he begins to fine-tune some matters of the heart. He's been teaching some general truths, uh, mostly through parables, about human hearts, about the soil that the heart is like, some kinds of soil. Uh, He's been teaching these basic truths, but he does some fine-tuning in this chapter that I think is really interesting, kind of the things that you would expect you would expect a, 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 a friend to do around a table to really highly tune and, and, and specifically hone the skills but the understanding of those who are going to carry his message. And here's four of the things he did. He commissions the 70 men, first of all. And then he, when they return with great joy, concentrates them on their goal redirects their attention, really. And then he teaches them the heart of God through compassion in the story of the Good Samaritan. And then he closes the chapter down with a choice that a woman made that is going to be critical to the disciples. So there's, there's some great teachings here, and there's some fine-tuning that goes on. Follow with me if you would. In the first 16 verses of Luke 10, He sends out 70 ordinary disciples, but faithful disciples, to go into the surrounding villages of Judea and prime the people for His coming. To Jesus, seeking and saving sinners meant casting a new vision before them, the gospel vision, a vision of hope in God through the remission of sin. And so you could say they were revisioning people. That people saw the world one way, and he was teaching his disciples to help people see the world, how they had learned to see it through the eyes of God from the teachings of Jesus. To see eternity, that that which God set in their hearts. He set eternity in their hearts, the, 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 the wise man said in Ecclesiastes. And he wants to reset that back into their hearts so they have a vision to look upward and they go out to do this and they leave just ordinary dusty disciples equipped with nothing but two things they're equipped with the teachings of jesus which have been instilled deeply in their minds and hearts in which they believe and in which they're invested they leave with the message the gospel and they're accompanied by spirit power The power of the Holy Spirit went with them so that they could heal and cast out demons from people who were possessed by demons. They relied on God and lived above reproach during that time. The way that He instructs them to live is really a way in which they will not be able to be accused of any kind of pandering, loitering, soliciting, selfish gain, false motives, etc. That's why he said, I don't want you to take anything. I don't want anybody to have anything on you that they can say, well, this is why they're doing it. So this movement is about them taking from people and receiving charitable gifts and and going around and seeing who they can stay with so they can scout out their homes and probably stealing. Nope, he said, I just want you to do it this way. And they returned from that, that mission in which they were obedient to Him with great joy. With great joy. Now there's a lesson in and of itself. If you do things Jesus' way, you'll have great joy in your work. But do you know that disciples today are armed with these two things? The same two things. We don't have to have anything else other than the gospel message and the presence of the Holy Spirit accompanied by a life above reproach to expel the demons that get footholds and strongholds in our lives and in the lives of those who are nearest To us. These are the same two things by which we're sent today. I want you to think about that. That the Spirit is with us and He is enabling us, converting us from within to be able to live in such a way that we come not just telling the gospel but bringing the gospel with us in our lives. We're living it, we're displaying the gospel, and we're sharing that joy. Helping someone change the course of their lives is. One of the greatest, if not the greatest joy that a disciple can experience here on earth. And who else would he want to leave this torch with that he set on fire before he was lifted up? Who would he leave it with? Who would be responsible for carrying on this message but those who were invested in him? His disciples, of course. They would be the ones to preach and teach. Of course, they would be ones to pen the words of the New Testament. Of course. Today, we would be those same disciples investing in Him and being commissioned to go out with the Gospel and with the Spirit and convert people to Jesus Christ. So the disciples came back overwhelmed with joy, but they were met, interestingly, with affirmation, but with some loving and gentle admonition. Two, he didn't rain on their parade. He said, indeed, I saw Satan fall like lightning. I wonder if that was a reference perhaps to Revelation chapter 12. That battle that broke out in heaven where Michael and his archangels fought against the devil and his angels. And they were cast out of heaven. Could be, Jesus said, I saw him fall like lightning. You can overcome Satan as we talked about Wednesday night in our class. No, He can't make you do anything. But you can make Him flee from you, to fall from you, away from you like lightning. But then He says this. He validated their excitement, but then He said, while they're doing their little touchdown dance, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Subject to us in your name. He curtailed something here. This is the fine-tuning that I'm pointing out to you. Curtailed something. He saw perhaps an, an imminent threat to them. And he gave them something really to rejoice over. He called to mind rather to rejoice that their names were written in heaven than to do a touchdown dance over defeating Satan. You see, focusing on overcoming Satan and sin tends to to focus on us and our victory over it. He may have been redirecting their focus from the demons are subject to us to you're subject to God. Don't forget that. Do your touchdown dance when you get to heaven. Rejoice rather that your names are there. See, he's protecting them from themselves. He is caring for them and keeping their feet on the ground. Their status as Faithful disciples secure and their motives pure. Jesus did this with the uh, imprisoned and despondent John the Baptist, too. Do you remember? We studied a little bit about that. How John sent disciples and said, Are you the one, or should we look for another? From his prison cell, from the inner dungeon of Herod's prison. And Jesus, instead of saying, John, how could you say that? You're so great, you're the greatest born among women. And look at all the work you did, and you saw who I was. And John, let me just stroke your ego and build your self-esteem a little bit. He said to those who were sent, go back and tell John what you see. Remind him of the gospel. Remind him of the things that are being done in the name of God with an eternal perspective on life. And then when they left, he turned to the crowds and he said, there's none greater than John the Baptist born among women. But if you're in the kingdom of God when it comes, you'll be greater than John the Baptist. You see, he was careful not to allow the disciples who came back overjoying over their success to wallow in their successes and take the attention upon themselves. And he rejoiced over this. Your name is written in heaven. That is more awesome than the works that you're doing in the name of God. That's what you need to have your joy in. I thought that was a, a small but very powerful thing to pull out of the chapter for us today. And as the group of preachers sat and the disciples sat near Him and He turned and He taught the disciples a few things about how fortunate they were to see and hear the things that, that the prophets uh, and angels of God longed to look into. Prophets and kings, excuse me, longed to look into these things. He said, and you're getting to hear them. How blessed are your ears and eyes. Someone stands up, a lawyer who was in their midst, stood up, and he said, "Good teacher, what must we do to inherit? What must I do to inherit eternal life?" And I like how Jesus gave him the dignity of asking him, "What, what does the law say? What is your reading of it?" And he answered correctly. Maybe he had heard Jesus answer the question correctly before this, where he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, you've answered rightly. To another who answered in a similar fashion, he said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But then this lawyer seeking to justify himself, good teacher, who is my neighbor? So that I can... Justify when i'm not a good neighbor, and Jesus told this story of a man who was on the road to Jericho who, Jericho who fell among thieves, and that there were three who passed by him you'll see it in chapter ten beginning in verse twenty five this description or this uh, dialogue with the lawyer and then in verse 30 a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing wounded him and departed leaving him half dead he said now by chance a certain priest came down that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side likewise a Levite when he arrived at the place came and looked and passed by on the other side but a certain Samaritan as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he was the one who had what? What's the word there in verse 33? He had compassion. What's the question? Who is my neighbor? Well, there was a certain man who, and there was another certain man who, and there was a third certain man who, but this third, this third certain man, one who you would normally look down upon, And despise is the one who had compassion. Which he's equating with loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And loving your neighbor as yourself. He had the heart of God. He wasn't just a neighbor that did a good work to to accomplish something good. As we're learning in our Sunday morning Bible class, this had an aim. He was drawing near to the heart of God in doing this. And he was a Samaritan of all things. This is the necessary quality in anyone who wants to draw near to the heart of God. For it is the very heart of God to care for him. Look at, now look at the, the do, the works of his faith. It says in verse 34, he went to him. He bandaged him. He anointed him with oil and poured the oil on him. He he set him on his own animal. He brought him to an inn. He took care of him. And the next day, he even offered to pay the innkeeper for the cost of caring for him. And when he would return, he would pay him back as if he owed him something. This was someone whose compassion led them to do the good works we're learning about in class on Sunday mornings to produce a fruit for God. Now we don't know what the thief ended up doing do we? What's interesting is we don't need to know that. What we need to know is how can I have the heart of God? How how can I fulfill the two great commandments? It just seems like so much. No, it really just looks like this. It looks like this and it's done with a motivation of love for God Himself. Finally, in Luke 10, a stage is set for one more great lesson in a small setting. Verses 38-42, through 42, we find Jesus in Bethany, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, at the home of some dear friends, disciples who had become close to Him, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, And it was one of the few times of quiet repose with Jesus and the disciples that they enjoyed in these final months. It came with a little taste of heaven. They have quietness. There's friendship. They're going to enjoy a meal. They're sitting around a common area, enjoying their fellowship. And Martha, one of the sisters is concerned with what most of us would think to be concerned with if someone like Jesus was going to come to our house. Martha's thinking, I've got the most important person on earth coming to my home. What does it look like? Is it dirty? Do I need to clean up? What are they going to eat? I need to be about making something to eat. All of these things are okay, right? Some scripture somewhere says cleanliness is next to godliness, I think, right? What book is that? And she's hustling about the place. I picture my own mother doing this. So she did. She was zipping around all the time just serving and cleaning and cooking whenever people were at the house. But this is Jesus in your living room. And she looks over, and there's her sister Mary sitting, doing nothing, she thinks. And it, she becomes indignant. And she actually goes to the Master. I mean, what a risk. She's so sure that she's right and that Mary's being lazy and she's not being a good servant. And that she ought to show Jesus more respect. Goes to Jesus and wants Him to reprimand Mary to get up and begin to serve Him. I mean, after all, this is what disciples are being trained to do. Serve the Lord their God. And his response just shocks her. It shocks me. It's shocking. He tells Martha she's worried and concerned about many things. But there is one thing that is needed, one thing has to happen. The house can be dirty. Do you think Jesus is accustomed to being a little hungry by now and his disciples and not being comfortable? Oh, I think they are. (laughs) We've talked a lot about that. He's accustomed to, like, well, I don't have anything to eat. I'm all right. I'll make it, I'll live. And he tells her there's one thing needed, and Mary has chosen it. She is sitting at his feet, feeding off of his word before she's concerned about impressing the Master, she wants to listen to the Master. How often we're so caught up in trying to impress God with our doing that we don't listen to God in the greater matters of life. I think about Matthew 23 where he told the the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, you tithe your mint and your cumin and your anise to a perfection. Your herbs, you got them separated out there on the table, just perfect. And you neglect the weightier matters of the law. Faith, mercy, justice. I think about... <clears throat> Revelation chapter 3, the first few verses, that letter that Jesus had sent by the hand of John to the church in Ephesus, that they were doing so many good things, but this I have against you. You've got, as the book out there suggests, you've got a Martha heart you need a merry heart and a Martha world." He said to them, you've forgotten your first love. You've forgotten why you're doing these things. You've forgotten, for example, why you're coming to church this morning. You've forgotten why you want to do good works for people. And he said, that's like the soil that the seed was sprouting up in it and coming actually to maturity and the thorns and thistles that were growing up around it were choking it out before it could produce fruit. That's, that's Martha. So one thing is needed. Words of life. Words of life that, as he says in another place, in this chapter, let these words sink down deep into your heart. And here's that thing that he was trying to get to sink deep into their heart, that the Son of Man must be betrayed and taken by lawless hands, and crucified, and He must be raised again on the third day. That must happen. So there's one thing that's needed. You must get this message to sink deep down into your heart, or all your works will be for naught. Mary is getting that one thing. I beg you, Also, beloved followers of Christ, disciples of Christ, lovers of God, let this sink down deep into your heart. Christ is coming back for us. And for us to be ready, we need to have that compassionate heart of God. We need to be fine-tuning to make sure that we're redirected toward our heavenly reward instead of looking for the praises of men and and rewarding ourselves and, and filling up our own egos, with our works, and we need so badly to have the heart of God for the sake of those who do not know Him yet. Let's get that right, and let's share that with other people today. Larry's going to lead us in a song, and for those of you who are thinking about becoming a Christian, I want you to come forward, we'll stand and sing, and we'll take care of that need. Give me thy heart, says the Father above, no gift, no precious to him as our love. Softly he whispers wherever thou art, gratefully trust me and give me thy heart.